before I, uh, this morning, so we're going to be starting a, a new series. We finished up with the book of John last week, uh, and we're going to be starting uh, in, uh, heading into the book of Exodus next week. So we're excited about that. This week, uh, I wanted to just take a one-week pause and um, just some things that the Lord has laid on my heart that I really felt like uh, we needed to address uh, this morning. So we're going to be in the, in the book of 1 Peter we're going to be in uh, 1 Peter chapter 5. While you're turning there, actually, I want to tell you a story from uh, 2 Kings chapter 6 in the Old Testament. Um, so in 2 Kings uh, chapter 6, uh, Elisha, who was a prophet of God, um, was, uh, uh, was surrounded. Uh, he and his servant were surrounded by uh, the armies of Syria and uh, his servant was pretty terrified at what was going on, and uh, they, they thought that their lives were at stake. And in 2 Kings chapter 6, um, verse 15, we read this, it says that when the servant of Elisha rose early in the morning, he went out and he saw uh, an army with horses and chariots all around the city, and he said, alas, my master, what shall we do? And so he's terrified and he's petrified because they're surrounded by these enemies. And Elisha said this, he said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Which was a curious thing for Elisha to say because it was just him and his assistant. There was just two of them. And they were surrounded by this massive army. And yet he says, those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then in verse 17 it says, Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, Please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And I thought about that story this morning because what Elisha was essentially praying was he was praying that his servant's eyes would be open to the spiritual warfare that was going on all around him. Elisha's servant was looking at what was going on around him, and, and he was just seeing everything from a, from a practical point of view, from a pragmatic perspective. There's two of us, there's a lot of them, we're in big trouble. And I think that that's how even we as Christians, when, despite what we say we believe in Scripture, that's kind of how we operate. We just look at what we can see around us, we think about what we can do with, with in our own strength and in our own wisdom, and we forget about the fact that there's a real spiritual warfare going on all around us that's more real than the hand in front of our face, and that there's a God who fights for us and on our behalf. And so my desire this morning, my prayer is the same prayer as Elisha's prayer, my prayer is that our eyes would be opened to the reality of the spiritual warfare that's actually going on in and around us today. That we would not sleepwalk through our, our Christian lives because it's so easy to do that. So I want to read 1 Peter 5, 8-11. That's going to be our text this morning. Uh, let me read the passage and pray and then we'll jump in. Here's what God's Word says. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. 
To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let me pray. God, um, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for the promises that are contained in your word. I thank you that you reveal yourself to us through your word. And I pray that you would change us by your word this morning. Lord, I pray that you'd give us eyes to see. I pray that you'd prepare us as your followers, as disciples of Jesus for the spiritual warfare that's in front of us every single day. I pray that you would strengthen us and encourage us by reminding us of what's true. And I pray that you'd empower us by your Spirit, God. Lord, I pray for anybody here that doesn't know you, um, that today would be the day of salvation. God, I, I'm powerless to help anyone, Lord. There's nothing we can say or do to convince someone. Um, God, only you can give spiritual sight. And so I pray that you do that this morning. Please, Lord, I need your help. Please work through my weakness this morning. I pray that the power of your word would do the work that you want done in our hearts today. God, please help us. Please be with me. We need your mercy more than we realize this morning, God. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So, 1 Peter 5 um, tells us that we have an enemy, that we have a, a foe. And Satan is the primary foe of the church. He's our greatest enemy. Peter says that he's like a lion prowling, looking for someone to devour. Satan hates God and he hates God's people. In fact, in, uh, in Revelation chapter 12, verse 17, uh, the apostle John uh, got a glimpse of the spiritual warfare, of the reality of the spiritual warfare going on around us. And at one point, uh, this is what John saw in Revelation 12, 17. Uh, it says this, it says, Then the dragon, which uh, was Satan, the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring and on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And so the woman represented Israel and the dragon in this vision represented Satan. And it says that Satan has made war against God's people, against those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So there's the point is, is that there's a real enemy and he has really declared war on the church, on God's people. And I strongly sensed leading up to this Sunday that we needed to talk about this and be reminded that we're in the midst of this spiritual war. Because it might not be seen with the eye, but it's real. And I believe that we're entering into increasingly uh, difficult days. It's not going to get easier to be a faithful disciple of Jesus. I also believe that there are numerous challenges on the horizon for our church that are going to come in many different forms. And so we need to be sober-minded and watchful like Peter exhorts us to here in this passage. So I want us first and foremost to be aware of Satan's tactics so that we aren't surprised by them. So we're going to look at the tactics that Satan deploys, and then we're going to look at what we need to know and what we need to do to resist him, as this passage calls us to do. We need to know, how do we do that? How do we resist Satan? So we're going to look at the tactics that Satan deploys, and then we're going to look at what we need to know and do to resist him as believers. So let's talk through some of the various tactics that Satan deploys that we see throughout Scripture. 
Satan will do all that he can uh, to attack God's people. He'll attack the church from the outside, and he'll attack the church from within. And one of the most subtle and dangerous ways that Satan seeks to destroy Christians is through deception. Um, in Homer's Odyssey, it's a Greek mythology, uh, he tells the mythical story of how Greek soldiers were able to take the city of Troy after an unsuccessful 10-year siege by hiding soldiers inside this giant horse. It became to be known as the Trojan horse, and they presented it as a gift, as an offering to the goddess Athena. And so when the city gates were opened and the people brought this giant horse inside, the soldiers came out of the horse and they were able to take the city of Troy. And because of this story, still today the term Trojan horse describes something that's used to defeat an enemy using deceptive tactics. And Satan's deception comes in two forms primarily. Satan seeks to deceive the church by distracting us from spiritual things, from spiritual realities. And Satan seeks to deceive the church by deluding us with false teaching. Distraction is one of the greatest dangers to Christians today because we have an endless supply of distractions and wealth and entertainment at our fingertips. And Satan seeks to keep people in spiritual darkness by taking our eyes off of the beauty of God and suggesting that we fix them on the pursuit of lesser things. There's no shortage of worldly pleasures and distractions he will parade before us to make us short-sighted and to keep our eyes off of the glory of God and the significance of eternity. He'll... He'll get us consumed with all sorts of trivialities, with all sorts of things that ultimately don't matter in the end. In uh, C.S. Lewis's uh, book that he wrote, Screwtape Letters, it's a, it's a work of fiction in the form of a series of letters that a senior demon writes to his understudy, a, a junior demon, uh, teaching him how to, uh, how to basically how to destroy his patient, is what he's called in the book. So uh, the premise of the book is that demons were assigned to each, each person in the world, and this is not all straight from Scripture, but it does teach true principles. And at, once, uh, at one point in the book, Wormwood, which is the, like the senior demon, tells his understudy this. He says... It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. So Satan can even use good, innocent things like a career or relationship to take your eyes off of Jesus and the reality of the spiritual war going on around you. He takes good things that we can glorify God with, things like careers, things like relationships, and He tempts us to make them the object of our, object of our worship. Good, those good things become ultimate things in our lives, or idols. And one of the greatest travesties in the church in America today is how successful Satan has been in distracting us from our primary calling to be fishers of men. Have you ever wondered why it is that we're so intimidated to share the gospel when we live in the safest place in the world to do so, and the safest time in the history of the world. Like, there's literally never been a safer place or time to share the gospel than now. And yet, I think the percentage of Christians who are actually doing so is fewer than it's ever been than here. We have brothers and sisters in other parts of the world who eagerly make Jesus known at much greater risk to their lives. 
Why is that? Have you ever thought about that? Like really thought, like why is that? It's because we're in the midst of a spiritual war and we have a real enemy who wants to silence the witness of the church. He distracts us with trivialities so that we're spiritually weak and immature because we spend precious little time in God's Word and in prayer. And the result is that we're not equipped for the spiritual war and as a collective whole, we get our tails whipped. Satan also deludes us with false teaching. If he can't distract us, he'll try to delude us. And most of the letters in the New Testament address some form of false teaching that was threatening to lead believers astray. For example, Paul writes in 1 Timothy 4.1, he says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to, to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. In 2 Corinthians 11, 14 and 15, Paul said that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Passages like that make it clear that behind false teachers and teachings is Satan himself, who Jesus called the father of lies. Just like an enemy on the battlefield, Satan will do all that he can to conceal his activities, and his schemes, and to remain camouflaged. He'd just assume you think that he's not there, or that he's not real. Or else, if that's not possible, he'd rather have you think he's just a silly red cartoon character with a pitchfork. But in reality, he's dangerously deceptive and an angel of light. He introduces subtle distractions and delusions to attempt to turn us away from Jesus and away from the gospel. And he'll even infiltrate the church to do it. And Paul told the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, he said, From among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things, seeking to draw away the disciples after them. Now unfortunately, there is no shortage today of false teachers proclaiming the name of Jesus who are twisting the gospel and leading people astray. And those false gospels are often dangerously close to the real thing, just with subtle shifts. That's why we need to be on guard against Satan's schemes and know and to know the Word of God so that we won't be led astray. It's God's Word that we're able to turn to so that we can compare what somebody's teaching with the Word of God. And if somebody's teaching something that isn't in alignment with God's Word, we can know we need to run away from that. The Christians who are most vulnerable to Satan's deception are those who are not in communion with God and not in communion with other believers. God designed the church in part for our protection. It's within the local church that you can find sound biblical teaching and brothers and sisters in Christ who can warn us of potential pitfalls and potential dangers. Satan doesn't just seek to devour through deceiving us, but he also seeks to devour us through division. Satan loves nothing more than to sow seeds of division within the church. To get everyone's eyes off of the real enemy and to get us pointing fingers at one another. There are numerous opportunities for that to happen in churches right now, including ours, which is why we should not be ignorant of Satan's schemes whether it's division over the response to COVID or over race issues or secondary doctrinal disagreements, there are many, many potential pitfalls 
many things that Satan would love to use to divide the body of Christ. I really think that Satan gets a kick out of watching Christians squabble over these things while multitudes perish into an eternal hell because we're too focused on winning arguments instead of winning souls. It's like two people arguing over a chicken bone that fell on the floor while we have a hot feast just on the table waiting for us. I'm not saying we should sacrifice truth for the sake of unity. There are some things that are worth dividing over. The gospel is worth contending for. I'm talking about the petty secondary issues that divide us. Many of you recall, if you were here when we started this church almost two years ago, we prayed Philippians 2, 3, and 4 over this church over and over again. It says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. There are going to be times where we disagree with each other, but the question is, will we let Satan trick us into making enemies of each other? Will we allow relationships to be severed? Or will we humbly consider others more important than ourselves and give grace without measure? I love how Paul says it in Ephesians 4.3. He says, be eager to maintain unity in the bond of peace. Be eager to maintain unity in the bond of peace. Is it, does that describe you? Seriously, I want you to think about that. Are you eager to maintain unity? Or do you invite controversy and arguments? It's a challenging question for us all. We need to beware of Satan's schemes to divide us. And Satan also prowls around like a lion seeking to destroy God's people from the outside. So he'll try to deceive and to divide from within, but he'll also attempt to destroy God's people from outside. This was the primary situation facing the believers that Peter was writing to. In chapter 4, verses 12 and 14, he wrote this. He said, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, so that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So the the Christians that Peter wrote to lived in the Roman Empire, and it's evident from the letter that Peter wrote that they were facing verbal abuse, and discrimination, and other forms of persecution. And Satan's aim in this persecution is to frighten us into abandoning our faith in Christ and to intimidate us into silencing our witness. And that may come in the form of threats to your social standing, to your job, to your reputation, to your freedom, or maybe even your life. Now, there's, there's not an immediate threat right now for physical harm or martyrdom for us who live in the United States, but we are living in a culture that is increasingly hostile to the gospel. It's very evident to see that over the, over the past five years, that has accelerated at an alarming rate. Things are changing in our culture. Things are changing in our country. Religious liberty is being eroded and the culture is increasingly incompatible with biblical Christianity. Alistair Begg, who's a pastor in Ohio, he said that the prevailing wind is no longer at the back 
of the sales of professing Bible-believing Christians. It's true. The prevailing winds are at the back of secularism and in the face of Bible-believing Christians. It's becoming more and more costly to be a follower of Jesus. But brothers and sisters, that's not necessarily a bad thing, in my opinion. Here's the deal. Whether it's deception, division, or threats of destruction via persecution, Satan's aim is to devour your faith. He wants us to abandon our trust in Jesus and to silence our witness. So the question is, what do we do? What do we do? After explaining that the devil prowls like a lion looking for people to devour, in verse 9, Peter says, resist him, firm in your faith. That's important to, to catch there, firm in your faith. See, it's not by our might or our strength that we wage spiritual warfare. It's by being completely dependent on God. It's by trusting in Him and in His promises that we resist Satan. Psalm 28.7 says, The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in Him and He helps me. Resisting the devil starts by trusting in who God is and what God has said. There's, there's three particular truths I want to urge you to remember as you resist the devil that, that Peter points to here in this passage. First of all, Peter reminds us that, that God is completely sovereign, that none of the persecution, none of the spiritual warfare is an accident. He says, stand firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood around the world. Throughout this letter, Peter continues to remind these believers and to remind us over and over that the trials that were endured during Jesus told us these things would come. They're not surprising to God and they should not be surprising to us, nor are they meaningless or random. God is sovereign over them all. Jesus said in Luke 21, 18, He said, Not a hair of your head will perish apart from your Father. Not a hair of your head will perish apart from your Father. Jesus does not merely mean when He says this that not a hair of your head will perish apart from your Father's knowledge. He's not just saying not a hair of your head will perish apart from His knowledge. That would not bring very much comfort. What good would it do if God knows about the hardship we endure, but He's powerless to stop it? But the Bible teaches that God is sovereign over it. Jesus means that not a hair of your head will perish, little children, apart from God permitting it to happen. That's what He means when He says, not a hair of your head will perish apart from your Father. So if you are a Christian, God will only permit a hair on your head to perish if it is ultimately for your good. 2 Corinthians 4.16 says these light momentary afflictions are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. If we are going to make it through hard days holding fast to the gospel, even when it means suffering, we need a big and biblical view of God's sovereignty. We need to understand that God is sovereign over it all, even over our sufferings. The second thing we need to understand is that God is a covenant-keeping God. In verse 10, Peter exhorts us to resist the devil and endure suffering, remembering that the God of all grace has called us to His eternal glory in Christ. God has made a covenant, a promise with us, and it has been sealed by the blood of Jesus Christ. 
And the promise that God has made is that everyone who trusts in Jesus will be forgiven of their sins and have eternal life in the new heavens and in the new earth. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Sin has lost its power. Neither can the grave hold us because death has lost its sting. This is all possible because God is the God of all grace. See, we all deserved condemnation and death due to our sinful rebellion against God. Every one of us did. But God is so full of grace that He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to come and to die on the cross to take the punishment that we deserve for our sins. Jesus paid the debt for our sin on the cross with His blood, and then three days later, God raised Jesus from the dead, crushing sin and death forever. And the good news is that whoever repents or turns away from their sin and believes the good news about Jesus will be forgiven of their sin and receive the free gift of eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth. That's the covenant, that's the promise that God makes with all of those who trust in Him. Have you done this? Do you know the God of all grace? Do you know how full of grace God is? Or are you still trying to work your way to God by your good works? Are you still depending on your own righteousness, thinking that somehow you're going to be able to stand before God and go, look at all the good things that I've done. Aren't I worthy to enter into your kingdom? Think about the pride in that statement. Guys, we've all sinned and fallen short of God's glorious standards. All of us already stand guilty. We desperately are in need of the God of all grace to extend His grace towards us. And that word grace, that means undeserved favor. Favor that you can't merit. Favor that you can't earn. It doesn't matter how many good works you've done. It doesn't matter how much money you give to the church. It doesn't matter how many Sunday school classes you've been to. I don't care. It doesn't matter. We can't do anything to earn our salvation. It's only by God's grace that we can be saved. And the God of all grace has made a covenant with everyone who trusts in Jesus. So that means that for those of us who've trusted in Jesus, while the warfare may be intense and Satan may fling his fiery darts, Jesus has promised that the gates of hell won't prevail against His church. So that means we don't have any reason to cower in fear or to give in to despair. The same God who graciously called us will graciously sustain us. We did nothing to earn our salvation and we can do nothing to keep it. God is not the God of some grace, but the God of all grace, which means His grace knows no bounds. Ephesians 1 puts it like this. It says, In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons, and that He did it to the praise of His glorious grace. In other words, He rescued unworthy, filthy sinners so that He could display the extent of His gracious love. He cleans us off by His grace. And we get to be the recipients of that grace forever and ever. Here's why, here's why it matters that we meditate on this, especially in the context of spiritual warfare. That truth, the truth of God's covenant that He's made with us, the truth that we stand forgiven before Him by His grace, that truth does not change just because you're enduring hardship. I think you know, oftentimes when we're enduring hardship, suffering of some form, we're being persecuted, or we're enduring physical suffering, or Satan's accusing us, 
it can feel like we don't have God's favor, like God is not pleased with us. But our salvation doesn't rest on our feelings or on our circumstances. It rests on the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So, guys, God has not abandoned our brothers and sisters in China, though they worship each Sunday in secret, wondering if today will be the day that the door will be kicked in and their pastor will be dragged off to prison, never to be seen or heard from again. God has not abandoned them. Yes, there's real suffering that they're walking through. Yes, there's real hardship that they face in their life, but they have not been abandoned by God. God has not abandoned the church here, though our religious liberties are being eroded by the day. We don't need to panic. God has not abandoned us. God is not panicking on His throne. He's sovereign over over it all, and His covenant with us is still intact. We're still the recipients of great grace. God has not abandoned you, Christian, though you may have suffered loss after loss this year. That does not change your standing before God. Your salvation is secure in the finished work of Christ on the cross. Brothers and sisters, we walk by faith, not by sight. We walk by faith, not by feelings. Psalm 94.14 says, The Lord will not forsake His people. He will not abandon His heritage. Don't miss that. It says that we are God's heritage. That means His inheritance. Romans, uh, Revelation 5.9 puts it like this. It says that by His blood, Jesus purchased a people for Himself from among every tribe and tongue and people and nation. He's not going to lose one of His sheep. If we are God's very own heritage, His inheritance certainly He will ensure that we are never lost. And when you grasp this, Satan will not be able to effectively wield the weapon of despair against you. That's why you must grasp this. No matter what you go through. God is completely sovereign. God is a covenant-keeping God. And the third truth I just want to point you to is that we are citizens of heaven. We're citizens of heaven. This world, the things of this world, are ultimately not our home. Paul says in Philippians 3, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will come and transform our lowly bodies to be like His glorious bodies. And I wish I could spend more time on this point. Look at at verse 10 and 11 again. Peter says, After you've suffered for a little while, The God of all grace who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. It is imperative that we understand the certainty of our future if we are going to persevere through spiritual warfare here. Paul says that Christians have been called into God's eternal glory in Christ where He will restore us and confirm us, and strengthen us, and establish us. That eternal glory that he's talking, that Peter's talking about is the new heavens and the new earth. And that restoration is what will happen when Jesus returns. Here's the deal. Because of our sin, God's creation has been subjected to futility, to pain, and to death. 
It doesn't take a rocket scientist to look around us and see pretty clearly that this world is not as it should be. Things are broken. There's futility all around us. There's heartbreak all around us. There's death all around us. Something isn't right. And what has made this world a broken place is our own sin. Sin has ushered in death and pain and futility into the world. But Jesus came to, uh, to, to reverse all of that. He came the first time to remove the sin that separates believers from God. And He's coming back again to restore all of creation and to resurrect us from the dead. Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. His resurrection, His bodily resurrection, guarantees our future bodily resurrection. Everyone who's trusted in Jesus because He is alive bodily, you too will be raised bodily from the dead. But it's not just our bodies that are going to be restored and glorified. All of creation is going to be restored and glorified. I think too often believers give in to despair or we hide in fear because we have an immature understanding of heaven, of eternity, of the new creation. We're not heading for an eternity where we float around as bodiless spirits in some ethereal dimension. No. God is making this earth new. He's raising your body, the body you have right now from the dead, that body will go into the ground unless Jesus comes back first. And then upon Jesus' return, your body, the one you have now, is going to be raised from the grave. Except it's going to be way more glorious than it is right now. And it's going to be imperishable. And it's not going to die. It's not going to have pain. It's not going to wear out. We don't know exactly how different our bodies are going to be, but they're going to be real physical bodies. And they're going to last forever. And we're going to have a real creation that we can explore. There's going to be endless mountains and valleys to explore. And we're going to be united with real people that we have relationships with. And we'll get to spend forever with them in the presence of God, basking in His glory. We'll get to talk with God face to face and ask millions of questions that we've always wanted to know the answer to. We'll spend an eternity uncovering the depths of infinite wisdom in a place where there's no more sin, no more death, and Satan and his demons and all who've refused to trust in Jesus will be thrown into the lake of fire. There will be no more sin. There will be no more temptation. There will be no more suffering or heartache. Just eternal joy and satisfaction and wonder. Do you realize that that's your future, believer? That's the future that awaits those who are in Christ. And so if that's the case, it changes everything about the way that we live now. Or at least it should. It should. That, no, it's, it's realities like what I just explained to you. That's why Paul was able to say things like, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And then in two verses later, he says, my desire, while he's writing from prison, he says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ. For that is far better. In other words, that's better than than living. Because Paul understood the certainty of his future. Do you understand the certainty of your future, believer? Or maybe you're here this morning and, and you don't even know if that's your future. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not quite sure if you're a Christian. Maybe you've even gone to church your entire life and you got baptized one time when you were little and you prayed a prayer, but you're hearing me preach and you're hearing all these things and, and you're realizing like, well, I don't ever really think about these things and 
I'm not really excited about that. I don't, I don't seem to know Jesus the way that some of these other people around, around me know Jesus. But you can know Him this morning. You can have the certainty of this future this morning. You can have the certainty that you're the recipient of God's covenant of grace this morning. All you need to do is acknowledge your sin and call upon God for forgiveness. Ask Jesus to change you and to transform you from the inside out and He'll do it. You can be saved this morning if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved, Scripture says. And you will have a certain future along with every other believer here in this room. It's knowing the certainty of our future that enables us to have joy and hope even in the midst of intense spiritual warfare, persecutions, hardships, whatever it may be. So let's fix our eyes on that certain future. I want to... I want to close up with a few exhortations on things that we need to do because we've talked about what we need to remember in light of spiritual warfare, uh, but we can't just be passive participants in spiritual warfare, okay? There's also an active component to resisting the devil. And so let me give you just a couple of things that I think we need to be reminded of this morning. These aren't the only things that we need to do in our Christian walks, but there's there's a few things that I think we need to reaffirm our commitment to individually and corporately as a church. Uh, Number one, we need to pray constantly. In Ephesians 6, Paul reminds the church, like Doug read earlier, that we wrestle not against flesh and blood. And he exhorted them to, to put on the whole armor of God. And then in verse 18, he says, take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication, keeping alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all of the saints. Do you hear the sense of urgency there in Paul's call to pray? The vigilance that we need to have? Pastor John Piper says that prayer is not a room service intercom. Prayer is a wartime walkie-talkie. Too often we treat prayer like a room service intercom where, well, every now and then if, if I need something from God, I'll press the intercom. Hey, God, I got this problem over here. Can you come solve it? Please. Thank you. God, I kind of I want this thing over here. Could you come and meet my need? Thank you. I'll talk to you in a couple weeks. Prayer is not a room service intercom. Prayer is a wartime walkie-talkie. Prayer is God's lifeline that he's given us. It's the means by which we can go to God in prayer and go, God, I need help. God, I need deliverance. God, I'm in the midst of a spiritual war. Come and rescue me. And God promises that when we call upon Him, that He will hear us and He'll come to our aid and come to our rescue. But sometimes, I don't, guys, we don't pray like that because I don't think we really think we're in a war. We don't really believe. And that's, and that's proof positive that Satan is winning. Because remember what I said? What's one of his tactics? Distraction, right? So he wants, us to, wants to distract us, to convince us we're not in a war. Here's the deal. If your life is marked by prayerlessness, then I can promise you that you're not aware of the spiritual warfare that's going on around you. You're not taking it as serious as you should right now. So I'm praying that this morning is a wake-up call for you and that you're realizing, oh no, like I've got a real enemy prowling around like a lion seeking to devour my faith, seeking to parade things in front of my mind that will take my eyes off of Jesus. He wants to seduce me and tempt me with worldly things that will lead me away from eternity and cause me to give my life to things that are going to perish in just a few short years. Don't give your life to what's going to pass away. Don't give your life to things that aren't going to last. Store up treasure in heaven and you fight to do that 
through prayer. Call upon God and ask Him to help you. Beg Him for help, and He will. We need to pray constantly, and we need to proclaim the whole gospel. Right after, in Ephesians 6, the passage I just read from, in the next verse, Paul says, he says to the church, pray also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. As the gospel is proclaimed, the kingdom of darkness is driven back. Revelation 12 says that we overcome the enemy, the evil one, by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. When Paul was writing to Timothy in prison in the epistle of 2 Timothy, he was chained up between two guards and he said that they can throw me in chains, they can put me in chains, but the Word of God cannot be bound. The Gospel can't be bound. The Gospel can't be chained up. As the Gospel is proclaimed, the kingdom of darkness is driven back. In Acts chapter 4, when Peter and John were beaten and then threatened with death if they didn't stop preaching the name of Jesus, they gathered together again with the church. And what did they do? They prayed. They didn't pray that God, they didn't say, oh God, please don't let us suffer anymore. Oh God, please keep us from persecution. No, they said, God, give us boldness. Help us to continue to proclaim your word with boldness, despite the opposition, despite the persecution. If you know that not a hair of your head will perish apart from your father, and you know that you will be raised to eternal life no matter what, then Satan's intimidation tactics loses its teeth. It's hard to threaten the life of a man who's already lost it for Jesus' sake. Lastly, we need to pray constantly, proclaim the whole gospel, and then patiently endure evil. Patiently endure evil. Guys, we can't respond to the loss of freedoms or to hostilities towards us as believers with threats or panic or angry rhetoric. In chapter 2, Peter urged these same believers to follow Jesus' example when Jesus was maligned and, and uh, when He was persecuted and ultimately when He was put to death on the cross. He said that when Jesus was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but, threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. So the way that we patiently endure evil is by remembering that God will right every wrong He will bring about the justice that we long for. And just like Peter says here, he says that after we have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace will restore, confirm, and strengthen and establish us. These light and momentary afflictions will last for a little while, but they're preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So we don't have to panic. We don't have to threaten. We don't have to get angry. We don't have to demand our rights. We can lay our lives down as a drink offering. We can love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us, which is exactly what we're called to do. But you're not going to be able to do that in your own strength. You're not going to be able to do that unless you believe these truths that we've talked about this morning, about who God is and about what He's promised. That's what empowers us to be able to to obey what Jesus has called us to. Uh, We're going to respond to the message this morning by taking the Lord's Supper together.